You are listening to an MLGA Network podcast. The day was cool and cloudy. An idyllic ridge painted with evergreen. A hauntingly beautiful image appears in the clearing. A woman in white. An apparition on a hill. Later, as she cradles her baby in her arms, the unthinkable happens. The FBI sniper shot Vicki Weaver in the face from 200 yards as she held her infant daughter. Why? I'm Cam Harless from Make Liberty Great Again, and you'll find out as we look at the events that happened atop Ruby Ridge in this Red Pill of the Week. You are a slave. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. All I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Randy Weaver was a family man. He and his wife, Vicki, didn't live what you would call a normal life, and their beliefs were nowhere near mainstream. They had moved away from society and had holed up in a cabin on 20 acres of land in northern Idaho on Ruby Ridge, about 40 miles from the Canadian border. The Weavers wanted to be separated from the rest of the world. They wanted to be left alone. They wanted to live in a remote area and give their children a good life. They wanted to homeschool their children and protect them from a corrupted world. But, as you know, this idea alone is antithetical to the policy of forced association that is pushed by the corporate media and the state. What's wrong with wanting to be left alone? What's wrong with wanting to separate from a society that you think is corrupt? What's wrong with not wanting to have to constantly deal with police and state agents? The problem is that it doesn't indulge the power dynamic that the state prefers. It doesn't align with the moral claims of the evangelical left. It doesn't submit to the authority of the moral majority or neoconservative domination. The Weavers committed the unpardonable sin. They insisted that different races ought to be kept separate. They believed that the world was coming to an end and that they ought to separate from society to survive the coming apocalypse. In doing so, they became sacrifices to the golden calf of the progressive religion. The Weavers were members of the Christian identity movement. This is a movement whose theology and understanding of the world around them are not at all supported by traditional Christianity nor the world at large. It's a load of hogwash based in bigotry. Simply said, the Weavers had convinced themselves that white people were the lost tribe of Israel and that other races were lesser or satanic. Vicky developed a set of beliefs following Old Covenant laws. They called God Yahweh and Jesus Yeshua. They also believed that the world was on the verge of apocalypse and that the end was nigh. Considering that, you would think that the majority of Americans would be fine with the Weavers taking their ball and going home. But no bad thought can go unpunished. Randy was a former U.S. Army combat engineer that worked alongside the Green Berets and a former worker in a John Deere factory. He even enrolled at the University of Northern Iowa to study criminal justice and wanted to become an FBI agent. However, Weaver dropped out because the tuition was too expensive. 
he became entirely distrustful of government and wanted to be as far from their reach and from their machinations as he could. He wanted, more than anything else, to be left alone. But, if you asked the feds, he was Rambo. He was a former Green Beret, a member of a cult that believed that the Jews controlled the government and an armed threat up in the woods of Idaho. One agent described him as extremely irritable and saw people plotting against him. They described him as paranoid, as though it should be viewed as some sort of mark against his character. But Weaver had every reason to be paranoid, as at least three separate government agencies targeted him and his family. The cabin in the woods where the Weavers lived had no electricity nor running water. They survived in the wilderness like the pioneers of the past. They decided to forego the luxuries of the modern world in order to be left alone. They wanted no violence against other races. They wanted no more than the ability to separate themselves from other races and the rest of the world. Due to these extreme beliefs, Randy was targeted for a sting operation. The Weaver's land butted up against some land owned by members of the Aryan Nation. Being white separatists, the Weavers visited some of the Aryan Nation meetings, but never joined their cause, preferring to be removed from society rather than becoming antagonists in some proposed race war peddled by modern-day Nazis. Weaver had no criminal record, and he was not a part of any white supremacist organization. He also had no ties to the federal government. So when Kenneth Fadley, an ATF agent embedded in the Aryan Nation, noticed the Weaver family in a meeting, he decided that Randy was the perfect person to use to bring down the organization. In 1989, Fadley made contact with Weaver. He had a simple request. He asked Weaver to sell him two shotguns. Randy declined at first, but with some goading, he agreed to sell the shotguns to Fadley. When Weaver went to deliver the shotguns to the undercover agent, Fadley had an additional request. He asked Weaver to grab a saw and shorten the barrels for him. Randy balked the request and told him no, but the agent persisted. He prodded. He asked until Randy said yes. Fadley wanted a specific length of barrel on those shotguns. He wanted to cut it to just the right length, so he pointed to the point on the barrel where he wanted Randy to cut. Randy didn't pull out a ruler. He didn't have a smartphone that he could pull out and check the federal government's laws on shotgun barrel length. He cut where the man said to cut. The agent, being with ATF, knew just where to point. He directed that cut so that the barrel ended up being one quarter inch shorter than what the federal government allowed, making Randy Weaver a felon with the point of his finger. Randy Weaver had no priors. He didn't sell guns for a living. He didn't regularly saw off shotguns. He lived alone with his family and tried to stay off the grid. But the ATF had him. He was quickly arrested, but he was able to get out on bail. Randy was told that if he infiltrated the Aryan Nation and became an informant for the ATF, all of his charges would be dropped. Randy said no. He wouldn't be bullied into becoming a snitch for the ATF like he had been bullied to saw off those shotguns. In December of 1990, charges were filed. Randy Weaver made the mistake of trusting the wrong person. He cut where he was told to cut. He sold guns to a man he didn't know. And with those mistakes, he was charged with selling, possessing, and manufacturing illegal firearms. Illegal firearms. The phrasing alone pisses me off. Randy appeared in court at a couple of hearings, but there was no headway made in taking him down for not bowing to the threats of a federal agency. After these hearings, Randy was mailed a letter. The letter told him that he was expected in court on March 20th. But there was a mistake. The wrong date was printed on the letter. 
the real court date was March 14th, six days earlier. I mean, this is just an honest mistake, right? Just a clerical error that nobody caught, right? Sure, that could happen. But one of the Justice Department attorneys knew about the mistake. That attorney let Randy miss the court date. Then, he got a warrant for his arrest. He didn't notice the error and correct it, or take that into consideration when speaking to the judge. He rushed to get a bench warrant. They didn't send a cop to knock on Randy's door and pick him up. In fact, they never even thought to try. The federal government decided that Randy would resist arrest with violence. So instead, they planned a secret operation with the code name Operation Northern Exposure and began surveilling the Weaver family for the next 18 months, just waiting for the perfect time to strike. They placed agents all around the Weaver property in full camo. They spoke to neighbors and had them gather intel on who would come on and off the property. The Marshal Service called in military aerial reconnaissance and had the photos studied by the Defense Mapping Agency. They prowled the woods around Weaver's cabin with night vision goggles. They had psychological profiles performed on the family and installed $130,000 worth of long-range, solar-powered cameras that they used to record over 100 hours of footage over a five-month period. They intercepted the Weaver's mail. They even bought attractive land adjacent to the Weaver's property and installed a marshal to try and befriend and trap Randy once again. They paid such close attention that they had plotted out the Weaver's teenage daughter's menstrual cycle and drew up plans for an arrest scenario based on that knowledge. They did all of this despite the fact that Weaver had never used violence against them when they had served previous warrants. They thought this man was going to go full-on John Rambo when he had never completed his special forces training and just worked as an engineer. Even though the marshals knew where Weaver was at all times, these marshals never met face-to-face -face with him during their investigation. They never tried to speak with him directly. Despite this, the marshals drafted a letter of acceptance, but the U.S. Attorney for Idaho abruptly ordered the negotiations to cease. Randy Weaver and his family weren't stupid. They saw the cameras. They noticed the men milling around. They knew they were being watched. They kept their eyes open and took precautions. They knew that the government had firepower and didn't approve of their way of life. When they were outside, they had their weapons with them for multiple reasons. When you live off the land, you need to be able to shoot a rabbit at a moment's notice if you want meat for dinner. When you have feds in camo snooping around your property with automatic weapons, the same rules apply. On August 21st, 1992, the Weaver's dog started barking at something. Randy's friend Kevin Harris, who was living with them, and the Weaver's 14-year-old Sammy went to check out what the dogs were barking at. They had it in mind that Stryker, one of their dogs, had found an animal that they could take back home with them for supper. Unbeknownst to them, there were three agents in full gear, camo, and face paint that had been throwing rocks at the dogs to get their attention. Just the night before, these agents had visited a shooting range and sighted their weapons to make sure they could aim straight. The group leader was familiar with the terrain. It was his 24th visit up to the cabin. As they went after their dog Stryker to see what he was barking at, one of the U.S. Marshals shot the dog, destroying his haunches. Sammy Weaver, still running towards the dog and the gunshot, fired his gun twice towards the sound of gunfire. Randy, hearing this commotion, yelled out and told the boys to come home, that this was an ambush. Allegedly, Sammy yelled back, I'm coming, Dad, and turned around to run back to the cabin. This is when all hell broke loose. As the words came out of Sammy's mouth, another gunshot rang out. 
The bullet from the marshal's gun nearly tore off Sammy's arm. The second bullet entered his back, killing him. A firefight ensued. Kevin Harris took aim at the marshals in self-defense. A marshal yelled, freeze! Harris, not wanting to be killed like his young friend, ignored that order. Harris fired, hitting the marshal in the chest and killing him. Federal agents testified in court that the marshal had been killed by Harris in the first shot of the exchange. Although, they were unable to explain how the marshal had been able to fire seven rounds before he met his doom. After the gunfire had subsided, the surviving marshals went down the mountain to call for help. As they fled, Randy Weaver retrieved the body of his son and laid him down in the guest cabin. While Randy took care of his dead son's body, the FBI's elite paramilitary hostage rescue team boarded a plane in Washington, D.C. Nearly 400 state and federal agents surrounded Ruby Ridge. The FBI's standard deadly force policy only allows agents to discharge their weapons in a defensive capacity. Without any shots fired from the Weaver residence, the FBI team commander sent a request to Washington to amend the deadly force policy. They requested, quote, If any adult male is observed with a weapon, deadly force can and should be employed. As I said before, the Weavers always carried their firearms with them outside of the cabin. Thanks to the surveillance apparatus the feds had built, they were well aware of this. Washington gave the go-ahead. The very guns that the Weavers had gotten to protect themselves became the target on their backs. Snipers were immediately dispatched to the hill surrounding the Weaver cabin. It was officially a standoff. The next day, August 22nd, Randy and Kevin decided to take a walk to the guest cabin to view Sammy's body once again. As Randy reached for the latch, another shot rang out. A sniper on a hill, using the excuse that they might shoot at non-existent helicopters, tried to take Randy out by shooting him from behind. The bullet made its way through Randy's arm. Randy and Kevin ran as fast as they could, trying to make it to the cabin. The sniper, who claimed to be able to shoot a quarter at 200 yards, took aim at Randy again. The woman in white, Vicky, stands behind the door, calling her husband to come quickly to get into the cabin. She is holding their 10-month-old baby. The beautiful yet haunting vision from before falls, her visage destroyed by federal bullets. The baby falls to the floor crying as the bullet flies through both of Vicky's temples and continues on and into Kevin's arm, barely missing his heart. All got quiet. The door closed and the weavers didn't move, didn't dare leave their cabin. The paramilitary team stopped aiming their guns at these scared people and began to target their minds with psychological warfare. Vicky and Sammy Weaver's bodies laid in those cabins for eight days. Voices through megaphones taunted, Good morning, Miss Weaver. We had pancakes for breakfast. What did you have? Randy, Kevin, and the Weaver girls stayed put for 11 days. Then finally, they surrendered. Randy and Kevin had charges filed against them. Randy made it to court this time. He and Kevin were found not guilty of murder, conspiracy, and assault. Randy's gun charges were dropped, but he was found guilty of the failure to appear charge. Randy served three months and won a $3.1 million lawsuit against the federal government due to the wrongful death, let's call it what it is, murder, of Vicki and Sammy Weaver. But as I said with the Philadelphia bombing, there's no amount of money that can abdicate the guilty when it comes to murder. There's no amount of money that brings the dead to life. But, looking online, you can find the same song and dance routine that comes when a state worshiper wants to defend the federal government.
Somehow, if a 14-year-old is shot in the back by a federal agent, he had it coming. He shot at cops after all. Forget that the agent was in full camo, wearing face paint, and that he had just shot the kid's dog in front of him. If a woman takes a bullet to the face while holding her baby, the FBI agent who killed her can't be responsible. It's not his fault. He was just following orders. An internal FBI report justified the killing of Vicki Weaver by saying that she had put herself in harm's way. Blaming Randy Weaver for his son and his wife's murder is not an unknown phenomenon. They often pair this with defending Vicky's murder by using the collateral damage defense that they use to justify the slaughter of innocent women and children in Iraq. Not to mention that many of the articles that I came across while researching only mention Ruby Ridge as it relates to far-right or racist movements and individuals in America who view it as it was, a tragedy and an attack by the government on an individual that tried to remove themselves from their power. The corporate press and the government can't abide by people living their own lives and separating from other people. It doesn't really matter if the Weavers were racist or were religious nuts that thought the world was coming to an end in the early 90s. As soon as they decided to leave society and live their own way, the feds conjured imaginary militias and an early 90s make-believe racist boogaloo to demonize those who tried to separate themselves from the government or from others they had no interest in being around. Remember this when someone says that your belief in liberty and freedom is incongruous with society and tells you to move to the woods or to move to Somalia. The state doesn't care where or how far you go to live peacefully away from the feds and those that you do not want to associate with. They want control. They want to dictate where you live, what sort of work you're allowed to do, what you say, and how you think. To them, you are a possession. You are a commodity that lines their pockets and gives the self-righteous the ability to declare that they are benevolent, kind, and that they rule over you for your own good. Ruby Ridge is seen by the evangelical left as a white supremacist and radical right dog whistle. And as you've seen here, the evangelical left and the Republican state are pleased to shoot whatever dog crosses their path. And when something tragic happens at the hands of the government, those who commit atrocities are protected. The sniper who shot Randy Weaver and killed Vicki Weaver was acquitted. The man who shot Sammy was not brought to justice. The judge who decided the case of misconduct at Ruby Ridge found 12 FBI officials guilty of inadequate performance, improper judgment, neglect of duty, and failure to exert proper managerial oversight. However, the heaviest penalty received by these men was 15 days of unpaid leave, and only four agents received that punishment. The Attorney General in the George H.W. Bush administration, who was responsible for both the U.S. Marshal Service and the Federal Bureau of Investigation, whose misconduct led to the deaths of Sammy and Vicki Weaver, did he reprimand these men and take responsibility? Absolutely not. He spearheaded legal efforts to assure total immunity for the sniper who killed Mrs. Weaver and any federal sniper who behaved similarly. He spent time and money to make sure that those who kill innocent people due to misconduct are protected by the federal government if something like this occurs again. This attorney general, William Barr, told the New York Times in 1993 that he was not directly involved in the Ruby Ridge operation. Two years later, the Washington Post revealed that top officials of the Bush Justice Department had at least 20 phone contacts concerning Ruby Ridge in the 24 hours leading up to Vicki Weaver's killing. Two calls included William Barr. 
William Barr was not called to account. He did not have to answer for these crimes, nor did he lose his status or his job. In fact, just a few years ago, he was rehired in the same position of Attorney General by President Donald Trump. The federal government may not bust down your doors for your Facebook posts about freedom. They may not destroy your life for being in an anti-war protest. But know that if you decide to reject their authority and live on your own, that can't stop them. All it takes is for a federal agent to point his finger and tell you to cut. It is possible to lose your life or your loved ones over a quarter inch. There's your red pill. Don't take the whole bottle. Yeah.